Oh, Lord, what a reason to rejoice that, that you have done a great thing. We weak and trembling, helpless people, incapable, unable, Lord, can be made right when you intervene, when you step in, when you do a great thing. And it makes us weak ones who have sinned and rebelled cry out to you with praise that you would do such a good thing in our lives. We rejoice over you. Even when the times of sorrow come, Lord, you help us sing by reminding us of that gospel truth that you have intervened in our lives for good through grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like most people, I happily embrace many titles in my life. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a Christian. I am a pastor. I am a Hawkeye. I am a Floridian. I am a brother. I am an uncle. I am a friend. I am a sports fan. And I am many more things. And descriptions like these can help define us, and I am glad for them. But I think we all know that there are some titles that can cause as much confusion as they do clarity. But some titles cause as much confusion as they do clarity. In fact, they can be so foggy to many people's understanding that they are sometimes even unhelpful. One such title that accurately defines me, but I am slow to announce, is Calvinist. And the reason, as I have discovered over the years, is that most people don't actually know what a Calvinist is. And if I tell them, then they often begin to assume things about me that are not true. Because many people have preconceived ideas about it, and they are both inaccurate and partial. Ideas that likely they have learned from either those who oppose it or those who have miscommunicated it. And sadly, there has been a lot of miscommunication of this, generally by people who don't fully understand it. Now, I personally experienced this most clearly when a couple, two or three years ago, I was waiting on God to call me to a church as pastor. And during that time, I met with quite a few church search committees through conference calls and video go-to meetings. One or two of those church committees seemed to clearly understand the meaning of the title, and they wanted their next pastor to be in general keeping with its doctrines because they believed that those doctrines were actually in the Bible. But with every other search committee, they fell into one of two camps. They either didn't think much about it and didn't ask much about it, determining that it wasn't all that important, or they quickly asked me the question, are you a Calvinist? And when they asked this, I could usually tell that their motive behind the question was one of opposition, and they wanted to hear that I was equally opposed to it. And what I learned was that the title itself came with a lot of baggage for a lot of people. For they had either a history with it or an understanding of it that made them fearful towards it. 
So my answer to them would usually be something like this. Though I appreciate a number of the things about John Calvin, as I do most of the Reformers, there are some aspects of his teaching and his ministry that I do not agree with. However, I do hold to the doctrines of grace that he and others espoused because I think they are clearly taught in Scripture. And when I would mention that phrase, the doctrines of grace, I always receive back from them the same blank stares because they did not know what the doctrines of grace were as they had never been clearly taught these doctrines and therefore I could not really fault them. But what this meant was they did not actually understand Calvinism as has been defined and articulated by so many throughout history. For when one says that he or she is a Calvinist, what they generally mean is that they hold to the five doctrines of grace. The very doctrines that we're going to look at over the next five weeks. Now let me say something, hopefully with great clarity. I do not have much interest in labeling myself after other fallen human beings no matter how great of teachers they may have been or even are today. Because every single human being save one is a fallen human being and there will always be some deficiency in that person's life and teaching that is not admirable. I am thankful for John Calvin. I am also thankful for William Carey, the father of modern missions, and John Owen and Jonathan Edwards, great theologians, for Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, and Matt Chandler and John Piper, modern-day pastors. All of these individuals avowed Calvinists. But I do not desire an attachment to these men at all points, just as they would not want me to attach myself to them as all, at all points. Rather, I desire to be known by the one who made me and saved me. I desire to be known as a Christian, a follower of King Jesus Christ. And I desire to be known as one who loves the gracious truth that is found in his word. Now, my aim over the next five weeks, as I hope will always be my name when I enter into this pulpit, is to clearly articulate what the Bible teaches. So each week... I will attempt to explain these doctrines from the Bible using various passages. I will then seek to answer the most common objections to them. And then I will relate how these doctrines matter to the lives of Christians. But first, let me relate what is at the heart of these doctrines. The two biblical convictions that inform them all. Conviction number one behind these doctrines. God does whatever he pleases. That's fundamental to this. God does whatever he pleases. He always, always acts according to his perfect will and desire. And I take this from a number of places, two of which are, first of all, Daniel 4, verse 35, where it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say, stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
So according to Daniel 4, God does whatever his, whatever his will decides to do, and that no man, no woman should ever say to him, what have you done? Because it's always good and always right, always perfect. Also, Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So God does whatever he pleases, whatever he desires to do. Conviction number two behind these five doctrines. God is fully sovereign over the salvation of his people. He's fully sovereign. He's fully master. He's fully in control. He's fully behind the salvation of his people. At every point of the salvation of human beings, God is directly responsible. And I'll take two passages to say why I come to that conclusion, and I think that's right. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yea, Father, for such was your gracious will. So God reveals his truth to his people through his gracious, loving, giving will. And with that, Ephesians 1, verse 11, In him, God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All salvation happens because God wills it. He brings it about. So at the foundation of these five doctrines of grace is the belief informed by Scripture that God does whatever he pleases and that God is fully sovereign over the salvation of his people. Now, there are several reasons, I think, why some people do not like such concepts. They assault our pride, for one. They also undermine our broken understanding of what is just and fair, we think certain things should be this way. We think certain things should be fair in this way, but it's broken. It's a misunderstanding of how God sees things as just and fair. So that's a reason. And then with those, these doctrines leave us mere humans without a full and perfect understanding of how God's sovereignty over salvation relates and corresponds to our responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. They don't like that at the end of the day, I and everyone else who hold to these doctrines says, the Bible teaches this, I believe it, but there are components about it that I don't understand. It is inscrutable, Paul said to us. We don't comprehend it. We take it as true, just like we take the Trinity to be true. Just like we take the, eternal, the eternality of God, that he never had a beginning and never has an end and even is above time. We take that to be true, though we don't grasp it. We take these things to be true, and that is hard for some people to be willing to accept. Now, before we consider these doctrines, let me make a couple of things clear in case you were wondering. First of all, a belief in God's total sovereignty over all things, including salvation, does not in any way undermine efforts towards missions or evangelism. God uses means to reach people. 
God has always used means to reach people. Namely, he uses Christians who go forth with his word to reach people. I'm a vessel, I'm a channel, I'm a tool for the Lord used to reach people. Therefore, a Calvinist, when he holds to the doctrines of grace, doesn't sit back. He says, God, I rejoice over you, I praise you, and I know that you're calling the people to yourself, and so I go as a vessel for your glory to share your good word. And God uses that in people's lives and saves them. And I have prayed that he would do it today as I preach the gospel. It is true that such convictions will challenge unbiblical and manipulative practices that try to get people saved. It will challenge those. But in no way does it lessen the need or the fervor to share Christ with a lost world or to evangelize sinners who need a Savior. I think we've been trying really hard to make that clear over the last year that we've got a community around us that needs Christ, and he's put us here to reach them. In fact, I think church history unmistakably records that it has been Calvinists who have brought the good news to unreached people most, and as they went forward with full confidence that God has planned for the success of his gospel. A Calvinist goes forward with the gospel knowing God has already planned for its success. The seeds have already been planted. It's already ready. It's for me to share and to reap at different levels all the time. Secondly with this, let me make this clear. You do not have to fully understand everything that I am going to teach over the next five weeks nor do you have to agree with every single point of what I'm going to teach over the next five weeks in order to be a member at Riverside. I came to an understanding and a deep appreciation for these doctrines many years ago, and I believe they are extremely profitable and greatly encouraging for the church today. This is why I am committing to teach them even right now so explicitly in this series But I also understand that they are hard to grasp and raise a number of questions that often take a lot of time to answer. So my commitment to you will always be grace and patience. Please know you will receive a warm spirit back when you say, I don't get it. So here are the five doctrines that we will be considering. Number one, the total depravity of man. We're going to look at this today. This relates our desperate human need for God's grace. Number two, unconditional election. This relates that God planned to save his chosen people. Number three, limited atonement or definite atonement. This relates what Jesus did, what he actually did to accomplish his father's plan for his people. Number four, irresistible grace. This relates what the Holy Spirit does to apply Christ's work to his people. And number five, the perseverance of the saints. This relates that God's people are permanently changed by God's work in them. So today we're going to be considering the total depravity of human beings that we sinners are in desperate need of God's grace. So look with me. At Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, once again, pages, page 884 in your pew Bible. Begin with me at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When I look myself in the mirror, my pride makes me optimistic. But when God looks my way, his holiness makes him honest. I want to believe the very best about myself. I want to believe that I have a goodness in my nature, that I have something honorable to offer, that I am capable in my own abilities. My pride compels me to think optimistically about me. But when the holy God of heaven surveys all of mankind, including me, he comes to a very different conclusion. Because he sees through the facade and he witnesses the corruption of my heart. As Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God evaluates according to the best standard, according to the perfect standard. God evaluates us according to his own holiness, according to his own holy standard. And when he does so, he finds us fully and woefully deficient. In Romans 3, Paul makes clear what God thinks about human beings, the ones he has created, who fell in sin back in Genesis 3 with Adam. Paul makes clear what the perfect God, complete in his wisdom and understanding and justice, knows to be true about every man and every woman, that none of us are righteous, not even one. We do not understand him. We do not seek him. We have turned aside from him, and we do no good before him. Our mouths, in fact, proves this, Paul says, because we speak with venomous words that deceive others with utterances that belong in the grave. And our feet or our actions also prove this, for we are quick to shed blood, slaying people's reputations and murdering their spirits with our words and causing ruin and misery and death in our daily actions towards them. Ultimately, what we display is a lack of God-fear, verse 18 says. A lack of God-fear. We do not respect him. We do not honor him. We do not worship him. As Paul says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We have, every single one of us, failed to bring God the glory that he alone deserves. We have fallen short of praising him adequately. So our diagnosis by God is total depravity. Humans have been examined by God, the great spiritual physician, and his diagnosis is not good. Sin now pervades and corrupts every part of our human nature. This does not mean that we are as bad as we could be, but that we are depraved at every part of our nature, that every component of human nature has been infected by sin. It doesn't mean that we have all committed sin to the highest degree that we ever could or that our sinful actions are not being restrained in any way. It means that every point of our nature, every aspect of our being has been corrupted with sin. We are totally depraved in that every aspect of us has fallen. Our understanding, our emotions, our will, and even our bodies are sick with sin. Jim Oreck, who is a professor at Southern Seminary, he wrote this incredibly helpful little book this year called Mere Calvinism. I can't recommend it more highly enough. Mere Calvinism. And in this book, he does such a wonderful job illustrating each of these doctrines, including the doctrine of total depravity. And I want to share what he writes about this. He says, if we immersed a sponge into a bucket of vinegar, the sponge would soon be saturated with vinegar. That is, the sponge would be so full of vinegar, it could not hold any more. If we removed the sponge and squeezed it out, no matter how hard we squeezed, every bit of the sponge would still be damp with the vinegar. And if we cut off any part of the sponge, it would still be damp and smell like vinegar. Similarly, while no human is completely saturated with sin, every component of human nature has been adversely affected by sin. If we separate and examine the various components of human nature, every part is wet with sin and smells like sin. So we are totally depraved in that our nature has been corrupted by sin at all points. Now turn with me over. We're going to look at three passages this morning. We've looked at Romans 3 briefly. Go over with me to Romans, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to look at the first three verses. This is page 917 in the Pew Bible, if you're using one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, page 917 in the Pew Bibles. And Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So Paul here provides us with what is perhaps the most palpable description of our understanding, excuse me, our standing before God as human beings. We all, every one of us today, got up this morning. We all of us, we put on clothes, we probably ate something, and then eventually we made our way to this church building for worship. Physically, my friends, we are alive. Every one of us here today, we have relationships with other people. We can think and we can act with God-given energy because we are living, breathing human beings. But Paul tells us that the sinner is dead. The sinner is spiritually dead in his or her transgressions and sins. We are dead men and dead women walking because of our sin. The biblical expression of death is akin to the idea of separation. Just as physical death separates the human body from the, excuse me, the human being from the physical body, physical death separates the human being from the physical body So spiritual death has separated human beings from God. Instead of following him, we follow the course of this world, Paul writes. We follow the prince of the power of the air, which is the death culture of Satan himself. We live in the passions of our flesh, he writes, carrying out the selfish, sinful desires of our bodies and our minds. And the result of all of this, verse 3 says so clearly, we are children of wrath. God is angry over our sinfulness. And we are now separated from him and must have his intervention if we are ever to be made alive. And this is precisely what God has done through Jesus. Because in verse 5 it says, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Dead people must be made alive if they are ever to spiritually walk with God. We must have God intervene or we are completely without hope. Paul says in another place, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, these words on this idea. He says, the natural person, so the person who is natural without any aid or effort by anyone else, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Catch that again. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. By nature, we cannot accept the things of God. We are dead, spiritually speaking. The things of God, the things of eternal life, are folly to dead people. We are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And unless the Spirit of God intervenes in our life, We are without hope in our depraved condition. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As sinners by nature, we love the darkness rather than the light. We love our works, our evil deeds, because we think that they make us happy. And we don't want anyone to expose our deeds or hold us accountable for our deeds because we don't ever want to have to give up our deeds. We think they're great, so we hold tight to them. We don't want the light. We want the darkness. We are spiritually dead towards God. We cannot make ourselves alive because we all foolishly are grasping for fleeting pleasures in our spiritual death. Jim Oreck, he says something I think so good. He says, we do not want the fountain of living waters. We want the leaky, store-bought, plastic wading pools of earthly pleasures. We want the little gross thing that leaks. We don't want the fountain of living waters. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. They must be made alive by God. As the prophet Ezekiel wrote when he said, Then he, the Lord, said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. The bones come alive because God brings life to them. He brings breath to them and they begin to live. In this sense, the doctrine of man's total depravity might also just as easily be explained as man's total inability. Man's total inability. We are, in our dead condition, incapable of coming alive apart from God's intervention. Now read with me. Go over to the Gospel of John. Read with me John 6. This is page 838 in your pew Bible. 838 in the pew Bible, John 6. Notice with me what Jesus himself said. Of course, Jesus has given us all of the word, but Jesus, when he was on earth, what he said. John 6, look with me at verses 41 through 47. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus' words here highlight the end result, the ultimate result of our total depravity that we as human beings are incapable of coming to God on our own. Verse 40, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So 
When he says in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life, you got to couple that with the fact that he said in verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which makes us conclude this. On April 7th, 1986, I put my personal trust in Jesus Christ. And what I have come to understand now is that when I believed on Jesus Christ and now I believe on Jesus Christ, all of that has come about because God the Father has drawn me to Jesus Christ. Yes, believe upon Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, you look back and you realize, I didn't see it, I didn't know it, I didn't feel it. But he drew me to himself. This is what Jesus is saying. Look at verses 63 to 66. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said... This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus says that the Spirit of God is the one who gives life. And no one comes to Jesus unless it is granted or gifted to him or gifted to her by the Father. All of it is by God. Every bit of it is by God. Unless God intervenes, unless we are born from above, as chapter 3, verse 3 says, you must be born again. Unless God intervenes and has us born again, we will never go to Jesus. In our dead, depraved natures, none of us can go to God. No, my friends, God must come to us. And when we do believe upon Christ, we must then say, God has drawn me to himself, for I now believe in his son. Praise God that he did that. So man is totally depraved. God has diagnosed us as sick with sin in every part of our nature. We are spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins, and we are therefore incapable of coming to new spiritual life apart from God's regenerating work in us. This is our bleak condition. But there is a common objection that is often given to this doctrine. And here's how it often goes. If no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws that person, then why does God command everyone to believe in Jesus? Let me read it again. If no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws that person, then why does God command everyone to believe in Jesus? In other words, when God commands something, shouldn't we assume that we are able to obey that command? Is God sincere with us? Well, let me give a few answers to this excellent question. My first answer is this. Yes, God is sincere with us. There is no lie with God. There is no falseness to the Lord. The command by God to all people that they repent and believe in Jesus, and if they do, they will be saved, is a sincere one. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is knowing that he's done something for you and then recognizing that if you believe, if you accept repentantly what he has done in faith, you will be saved and have everlasting life. That is true. God offers that to all. The problem is that when left to ourselves all by our lonesome, we will never obey him and we will never come to Christ because we desperately need his gracious intervention. He has given every one of us an opportunity to turn from our sin. And his offer is real. But all of us, when left to ourselves, run to sin instead. Because by nature, by our deadness, we see only the perceived value of our sin and none of the glory of God. We don't come to God because we don't want to come to God. The issue is not with God's sincerity. The issue is with our corrupted hearts that have come about because of our sin. Answer number two, our inability to come to God is the result of our own disobedience. Therefore, the fault is not with God, but with us. Men and women have willfully chosen to do evil with their words and actions, and there are consequences to this by a holy God. Men love darkness rather than light. The fault does not lay with God, but with us. Jim Oreck again says this so helpfully. Ought God now to say, well, since you love darkness so much, I will revise my expectations of humans and will no longer require you to come to the light. Suppose a thief, he writes, suppose a thief appears before a judge and says, Judge, if you let me out of jail, I will just steal again because the fact is, I love to steal. You might say I am addicted to stealing. I don't even need all the stuff I steal. I just love the thrill of stealing. I enjoy getting to use stuff that I have not paid for. And frankly, I do not care how hard someone else has worked for something he owns. When I want it, I steal it. There is no point in your telling me to get a job and pay for stuff. I am not going to obey you. He goes on to say, Ought the judge to say, I see your point. Therefore, I will not tell you to get a job and become a law-abiding citizen. Of course not. The law remains the same. God's law remains the same, even though sinners are so in love with sin that they have no intention of repenting. Remember, he writes, men cannot come because they will not. Sin has debilitating, enslaving effects. End quote. This is just as Jesus said in Romans, excuse me, John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are under the control of sin. It is our master. It directs us. 
our allegiances to it. This is who we are. So my third answer is learning of our inability to come to God is actually an indispensable first step to our salvation. It awakens us to our great need for God's intervention, forcing us to turn to him alone and thereby bringing him all the glory. Notice what Paul says about God's intention behind his law. Listen to this. We just read part of this passage in Romans 3. But Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." A great purpose behind God's law was to stop every prideful mouth, to show human beings that we are sinners and that we are accountable to God. And this law can justify no one in God's sight, for it is meant to bring us to the knowledge of our sin. So God has given us his law to show our sinfulness, to reveal that we are accountable for our sinfulness, that we might thereby turn to him. In other words, our inability to turn to God magnifies God by revealing him as our only hope. We must first see the true nature of our lostness, our dire sinful condition, before we can ever recognize our need for God. We must see our sickness before we will ever turn to the physician. So how does the doctrine of total depravity impact us? Well, number one, it should help us understand our natural disposition before God and how it affects us. There is nothing, my friends, more important in life than realizing one's true condition before a holy God and recognizing that it affects every part of our lives, even our eternal life. This should make us see our desperate situation that we can do nothing ourselves, that our only hope is the gracious, loving God. We should grasp who we are and upon recognizing who we are, go to the only place that can be a refuge, the Lord himself. And that goes into the second reason, the second way I think this impacts us. If we recognize our natural disposition before God, then we should run to Jesus in repentant faith. My friend, if you see, if you acknowledge, if you know, if you've owned your sinfulness today, then understand that God has made that clear in your life. My friend, if you recognize your great need before a holy God today, then understand that this God himself has made you aware of it. He's brought it to your heart and mind. And there is one vital step that remains to repent of your sin and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. The one who went to the cross, shedding his blood, laying down his life for your sins, my sins, that we might be saved, doing an awesome work for his people. He has done this. And if you recognize your sinfulness today, my exhortation to you is repent of your sins, acknowledge their wickedness, see that God can change you from those ways, and believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and embrace him in that faith today, your only hope. Third, 
This should make us praise God. And this is why, this is why I cannot shy away from teaching these things. I can't avoid words. Usually I preach expositionally. This isn't me by nature to do a five part. This isn't usually me. But I feel like we have to hear this. And the reason why I think we have to have it so explicitly is because these doctrines make us praise him at a level that we don't when we don't understand him. When we recognize what exactly, what precisely, what ultimately, how great of a work that he has done in our lives, we can't help but praise him all that more. And then all of a sudden, prayer begins to happen evangelism begins to happen. Fire, flame, and a human heart begins to erupt. And people go forth into unreached people groups and share Christ, giving up their physical lives for him because they want to praise the one who brought them from death to life. He alone has brought dead, dry bones to life. And how much more is God's grace amazing when we recognize that it was for wretches like you and me? Our lives should be marked by praise over what he has done for us because, my friends, he has done so much if we know him. Fourth, this should make us rethink our evangelistic strategies. We must be fully dependent upon God even as we toil to share his message and not just give that lip service like I fear some do. We must throw out all of the manipulative methods and instead depend upon God's given means of saving sinners, which are the faithful, fervent prayers of his people, which is what we're going to do tonight at six o'clock in this room. And it also includes clear gospel teaching and preaching, whether it is by a pastor in a pulpit or a mom in a living room or a friend at the coffee shop. Clear, compassionate gospel teaching and preaching. God uses that. And God uses the lives of Christians that are marked by earnest love. That when we demonstrate a love that is true because of the love, true love that has been given to us, that is used by God in such a way to show people the validity of what he has done and to cause them to turn. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. God's work in me can actually begin to become the work in another. His word tells us that. So he has given us ways, means to go, and we must boldly go but we must do so in his way and not try to manipulate men like charlatans, like salesmen who want to find whatever gimmick they can to get people to pray a prayer. Let us not do that. It is a grace to be shown the truth. No one wants to stay in the dark. And this doctrine of gracious lovingness by God, as scripture reveals it, shows us the truth. It reveals our actual condition, so it is gracious. So let us praise God for this doctrine of grace. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard message. For some, it is new. For others, it isn't, but it's still hard. Lord, there are aspects about this that we don't understand, and in our pride, we want to say, no, that can't be right. 
But Lord, forgive us of that mind and let us recognize that Scripture must be our guide. And if Scripture says something, we must follow it even though we don't understand it. If nothing else, help your people at Riverside be a people who will say, if Scripture says it, I will follow it even if I don't understand it. And Lord, I pray that these truths would be clear. And that if I have said anything that was miscommunicated, or if anything here was wrong, would you correct that in our thinkings, I pray. We give you all the praise. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.